Well, good day, Pop Pickers. It's Dwayne coming at you from the wilds of Tasmania. I'm your raving reporter for Beautiful People, the Big Country vidcast for Big Country fans about Big Country fans. And, uh, well, it's about time, you UK people. I didn't have to get up so early in the morning to talk to someone over there in your time zone. It's about time you got up at six o'clock on a Sunday morning. How's that? How's that feel for you? Hey, hey. Well, I have got with me a fantastic local guest today who I don't really know a great deal about, but we're all about to find out about him together. This is uh, Wilson Rowe. How are you, Wilson? I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for thanks for jumping on with me. You're up in Brizzy, right? Brisbane? That's right, yeah. Okay. But it's not originally where you're from, you were just saying? No, uh, actually born in Frankston, down where uh, our mate Andy lives. So, so, so you're a bogan too? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, mate. This I is... also for, spent a long time living out uh, west of Sydney around the Penrith area. So I'm a Westie as well as a bogan. When were you in Penrith? Uh, just out of curiosity, because I grew up in Richmond. That's why I asked, which is okay, uh, yeah. only 20 minutes away. Yeah. Uh, 19, around 1980 to 87. Oh, I was there. Oh, cool. We were so close, yet so far. And I thought I was the only big country fan in Sydney. Yeah, I've, well, I think most of us thought that, didn't we? We were, we were scattered all over the place. And uh, until I found the groups on Facebook, I thought I was the only big country fan in Australia. Was that right? How long have you, how long have you been involved with the groups? Um, probably, I guess, three or four years, I suppose. Okay, so relatively not long compared to some of us who've, who've been... With Facebook groups, yeah. But yeah. Since about 82, 83. Yep, okay. So we, I'm just, I'm only guessing that you and I are around a similar age. So if you were, I'm, I'm assuming you're a child of the seventies and eighties. I'm actually right at the end of the sixties. Is that just, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, 1969, just at the end there. Um, Perfect. So I turned 50 last year. Not yep. long after the band played in Brisbane, about a week after that. Oh, nice. That was a nice little treat for you. It was. To celebrate. So um, tell us about your childhood. If you grew up in, in Frankston, um, tell us about your, your childhood growing up. You don't have to go into, into total detail. I'm interested in your musical influences. What kind of music were you listening to as you grew up? Did, you, did your parents or siblings have any um, influences that, that sort of stuck to you? Um, I only was in Frankston until about the age of four. Then we moved to Mount Waverley. A bit closer to the city in different well, not the, I think it's the same direction that's uh, the west east one of those <laughs> so I was a, I was a child um, a lot of my uh, the music I heard then was um, was what my dad listened to my mum wasn't a very active music listener but he was into things like Neil Diamond John Denver um, oh gosh those are the two that always stick with me Gordon Lightfoot um, stuff that I listen to now that I wouldn't have listened to then essentially um and beyond that my sister started getting into things like duran duran and adam and the ants and you know more adam and the ants i can see a crossover with big country there just with the powerful drum sound if nothing else and the, the punk sort of basis as well yep so was it after you um grew up that you moved to sydney or were you you spent um, all your childhood in in melbourne no um we left when i was eight uh, we were going to move to Cairns, um, 
but we got about as far as Nambour. My mum, who's English-born and had lived in Melbourne all her life, just found it too hot. Like, on the Sunshine Coast was too hot, let alone another 1,500 k's or more that we would have been heading north. So we ended up heading back to Sydney. Um, and so I was... For, for three months, my sister and I were doing correspondence school and more doing more learning of driving up and down the east coast of Australia, really. Um, and I was... I think I was still eight when um, when we settled in Blacktown. Okay. And then a couple of years later, out to uh, Mulgoa, which is uh, a bit south of Penrith. Yep. Yep. I know it well. <laughs> I know it very well. My brick house and tried to be self-sufficient. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you would have been uh, early teens when The Crossing was released? Yeah, 12, 13. Yep. Um, so what, what's, your, what's the story behind your discovery of big country? It was actually, um, I, was, I think I was commenting to Andy about this one, there's sort of almost like a coincidence. Um, you might remember Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. I do, very well. I just thought it was kind of funny because his name's Simon Townsend, and though it's a different spelling that, that um, Mark and Tony played with Simon Townsend in, um, on the air. But um, uh, he played uh, Fields of Fire video. Um, I believe that was the first I saw of the band. Saw that video and was quite entranced by the uh, the Scottishness of it. Uh, my best friend when I first started school was a Scottish kid, so um, I'd sort of grown a love of the, the country quite passively from there. Um, and then I saw that video and I thought that was great. And then sort of they disappeared from my consciousness for a little while and then In A Big Country came out and took the charts by storm. And I went, oh, yeah, them. And sort of stuck from there. Okay, so um, was there anyone else in your family interested in the music too, or was it just a solo kind of affair? My sister liked them as well, um, sort of in solidarity, but um, she didn't buy any of their stuff. Didn't need to, I suppose, because I was buying it all. Um, uh, she was very fond of one particular poster um, because of Bruce's pose. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but it was a revealing kind of pose. <laughs> she was quite <laughs> on that. Um, um, one or two songs my parents would like. I remember my dad commenting he liked Giant, the B-side of Wonderland, because um, it's quite a powerful piece. Um, but he kind of poo-pooed over everything else, so fine. <laughs> so um, what? What else were you listening to during that period? Like, I know myself, I was pretty obsessed with Big Country. I wasn't, I was listening to a few little things here and there, but Big Country was the main thing. Was it similar with you or were you spreading yourself out a bit? I, um, I liked a lot of stuff without necessarily buying it. So, you know, I thought Billy Idol was pretty good at that time as well. Um, I did buy a few Brian Adams or a couple that I bought Reckless and got the follow-up, whatever it's called. Forgotten it. <laughs> I've got it actually on on CD um, on iTunes now as well. Into the Fire, that was the one. So I, I quite liked um, his work at that point. Not so keen on his '90s stuff. Um, and uh, I mean, at school, everyone was going wild for U2 and Midnight Oil and Talking Heads, Dire Straits, these sorts of things. And uh, I quite liked it, but didn't buy any of it. Didn't need to. It's on the radio every twenty minutes. <laughs> That's right. I was I was similar. Everyone was into Midnight Oil. I didn't get into Midnight Oil until after they 
the popular phase. Uh, I look back and then thought, how yeah. how cool is this? Um, I was the same with the, I was the same with Cold Chisel, for example. Didn't like them at the time. Now I think they're great. Yeah. Have you ever seen Jimmy Barnes uh, recently? By by the way. No. He's an outstanding performer. Like because his solo music itself, I've never been a huge fan of, but. I won some tickets to go to a day on the green down here and uh, he was the headline. Oh man, he puts on a fantastic show, plays some of the cold chisel tracks, lots of his solo stuff. And uh, yeah, I can recommend Jimmy Barnes. He still does, puts on a crack of a show. Cool. That's my, that's my top tip for today. (laughs) I'll keep an eye out for him. So, um, so what are your thoughts on the, the various changes throughout, big country's history did you follow them each time a release came out how did you keep up to date with what big country was doing well as you would know it is actually quite hard to do that in australia we didn't have the benefit of, of all this internet style technology um i actually hadn't uh, it's a mental thing with me i think i didn't think to join the country club until after the buffalo skinners came out actually i was um i was in my mid-20s i thought oh, i'll give that a go Sending overseas like that seemed like such a, an unattainable um, thing to do, even though it wasn't. Um, I, um, I know I ordered in a couple of, of records in the mid-'80s uh, and, um, and only two out of the three arrived, I think, because Harvest Home um, 12-inch had been deleted from the, the record company's files. So I never got that one. Um, I'm not even sure if I've ever heard it yet. Should get on YouTube and see, um, but you know, I mean, they all came out, and um, I used to listen to Triple M mostly, and they would play, as far as I can tell, they play each single maybe once, and and that was their their token effort at um, at promoting the band. It seemed like, um, and when the the singles didn't take off, they stopped playing it, and so it was hard to keep up. Speaking of Triple M, um, we're kind of paralleling here because Triple M is the one I listened to as well uh, for the classic rock sound. You know, that was always what I was into. Um, but do you remember how they used to drop like little wolf howls into songs sometimes? Do you, do you remember with Triple M doing that? Maybe. You had to, you then had to ring to win a prize or something? Am I thinking of something else? Oh, they could have been, but I, the only reason I mention it is because when I heard... They used to play the 12 inches, <clears throat> excuse me. They used to play the 12 inches of everything, which was awesome because I used to sit on my little cassette deck and, um, you know, make a mixtape off the radio. And that when, I, when I recorded Wonderland for the first time, um, they were dropping little wolf howls through it. And I always thought it was part of the song. So when I, when I actually bought uh, the, the, the Wonderland record eventually, um, I was very surprised to hear it without the without the little wolf sounds through it. Um, so that was a very interesting. I wish I still had that mixtape. The tape would probably be disintegrated anyway. But um, did you ever do anything like that? Make mixtapes off the radio? Oh, it used to um, used to bug me when the the um, announcers would uh, speak through the start of the song, and I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> "Shut up! Shut up! Shut up!" Yes. Um, but I also used to um, make twelve inch mixes of big country songs um, with just my tape deck. So I'd play the record 
and record it through the speakers and then hit pause and then like move the record back to another spot and then open it up again when the part I wanted was going. Because um, I always thought uh, the Chance 12-inch should have gone out, uh, should have maybe just faded out on the harder chorus rather than dropping into the guitar part, if you remember how the 12-inch goes. Um, it's just like the little arpeggios of guitar at the end and then sort of, I think it stops outright. I just thought it should have gone rocking off into the distance. <laughs> Are you a musician as well? Yes. What is it, would you say Big Country was one of your influences in, in wanting to become a musician? Absolutely. Um, I remember the quote, I won't give, get a word for word, but Stuart um, was quoted as saying something like, if we've inspired anybody to get out and play music that is theirs, then we will have you know, done what we came here to do, essentially. But I know that's not the right wording. Um, <laughs> but yes, it was a big influence. Um, and Tony Butler's playing became... Not, not through me studying it, but it became a big part of how I played bass as well. Just not just hitting the root chord of the, of the sorry, the root note of the chord and, and just sort of thumping away at that, but finding something interesting to play. Okay. So are you in a band at the moment um, or have you been in bands? Are you a session musician or are you just, are you just fiddle around? I've uh, been in plenty of bands, not in a band. Uh, last band I was in, we finished in May 2014. Uh, and since then, it's just been hard to slot the time into to be in a band because there's travel to practice, practice, travel to gigs, gigs, all this sort of stuff. And um, just with, with all the other things going on, it, it just became a lower priority, unfortunately. Um, was looking at getting into another band very recently, but I realised that I'd probably just mess them around through being unavailable when they needed me, so I pulled out of that one. What were you doing, just live shows with the band, or were you recording stuff? What were you doing? Uh, we had some recordings. We actually had a song on iTunes that did okay, um, but uh, various things happened behind the scenes that um, that I wasn't aware of, but I also wasn't involving myself heavily enough. Uh, so that's kind of a lesson for people. Make sure if you're if you're in something, involve yourself in it, um, because maybe uh, I could have helped that, you know, sustain that instead of it falling away the way it did, without going into too many details. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a few people watching. Um, Ye is watching from over in. Uh, are you in Singapore or Malaysia? Ye, I can't remember. Um, Chris Ayu is in New Zealand. Um, Liam's in Ireland. We've got some. We've got some Irish musician, or at least one Irish musician, that likes to know what's your favourite big country baseline. He's not on now, but I'll ask for Niall. What's your favourite big country baseline? Gosh, actually, it's probably Wonderland. I think it's a, a brilliant piece, and I've seen. I appreciate it even more since I've seen Scott Whitley's playthrough on it, um, which I, I don't know if that's note for note what Tony did, but uh, either way, I, I always thought it was a great... Once I could work out the baseline, because the way Tony plays, before if, if you're listening to Big Country before you know much about music, well, I found it actually hard to pick the guitars away from the bass and vice versa, um, because he just intertwines so beautifully with the with the twin guitars so i found it hard at an early age to to split them once i worked it out 
I thought, what the hell? This is brilliant. So Wonderland, I'd say. Cool. Um, one baseline that I've really got a recent appreciation for is a song that I never liked so much off the Steel Tat album. And that was, um, that was Rain Dance. Sorry, just bear with me. I'm just checking that we're still going on the group. Yep, still going. Very good. Um, so Rain Dance, they released a, a Rock Palace. Did you get the Rock Palace uh, release that was came out in the last 12 months or so? No. There's um, a, a gig from the, from the 80s. And because um, they didn't they didn't perform Rain Dance live very often, but when you see Tony and hear him do it live, it's absolutely phenomenal. So I recommend you look that up and see if you can have a listen to that. Do yourself a favour, as Molly would say. <laughs> you that had to come out somewhere. <laughs> no, I'm not wearing the, I'm wearing the headphones, just not the hat. Uh, you left your, your your band in 2014. That was your last band. But I wanted to ask you, because this is totally non-musical related question, but you're in another line of work that is totally, to me, unusual. I don't know anyone else who does this kind of work. Tell us about what you do right now. Okay. Well, there's various aspects. It's all within publishing. So my main income is from working as a cover artist for uh, probably three different publishers um, and just for whoever else might rock up to my doorstep metaphorically um my my e-doorstep um mostly it ends up being romance covers um and you know various naughtier genres but also science fiction and thriller and crime and i also write and i write in various genres i have some children's books which uh, i co-write with somebody and uh, i also write wilson is retired as a writer now but I have two other pen names um, where I, which I use for writing romance and we could sort of um, euphemistically call it steamy romance, if you like, or we can just say it's erotica. Ran out of breath there. Erotica. <laughs> so so you, don't write, you don't write the erotica under Wilson any no, longer? No. I mean, I, I was looking at relaunching um, a, a book uh, under Wilson and I realised... My, my main problem is I don't have enough energy to, um, to maintain a male romance name, if that makes sense. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of guys out there who are doing really well in romance, but it's a little bit of an uphill battle and it's one I'm not prepared to, to fight at the moment. So I've decided to retire the Wilson Rowe name from writing and keep it only for cover-up. Okay. So my question to you is how... How did, how did you find yourself in erotica in the first place? I find that, I find that fascinating. Um, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, well, um, the direct um, thing that happened was uh, Queensland Writers' Centre. I, joined, I, I wanted to pursue writing. I started out wanting to be a writer. I stopped so I could play music. Like I sort of put that aside and went into music for 25 years. Um, and then just towards... The latter part of that, I decided to re-pursue writing, joined the Queensland Writers' Centre. There was a call for um, submissions and one of them was for erotic fiction. I thought, well, I kind of like erotic things. <laughs> um, and um, so I thought I'd give it a go. And um, I did okay. I won the, the contest. 
I have no idea how many people entered. It might have been me and one other person. I don't know. But I won it. And that sort of started me on the on the path. And um, and from there, I, I guess it's, it's just, it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting lens to look at human interaction and humanity through as well. Uh, there are certain rules with the writing, um, like writing rules, but also cultural rules. Uh, and um, it's, it's a, a nice way to, to get fictional people to interact with each other if you know that they're heading towards this one spot. Okay. You've just got me, you've just got my mind wandering on a completely <laughs> different tangent. Um, no, it's fascinating. But did you find that you had a, so you won a competition to start with, yeah? Yeah. Okay. And, and you just took it from there? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Well, it didn't hurt that um, self-publishing uh, through eBooks was just sort of coming into its own. It had been around for a while because uh, we're talking two thousand, very early two thousand and six, that I um, uh, that I got that book published. Late two thousand and five, that I won the contest. Um, so, I mean, the, I don't think the Amazon Kindle device had even been invented at that point. I'm not sure what people were doing other than buying PDFs and viewing them on computer. Um, but things just started taking off towards the end of the noughties, so to speak. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, um, I managed to get in with uh, a small publisher who um, was kind of a little bit groundbreaking. They, uh, it was uh, an author named Selena Kitt who started the, uh, the publisher. It's called Excessica. And it was designed to simply get people's books out there. It was a publisher almost in name only um, as more of a collective of authors and um, everyone was invited to donate um, their time on cover art or editing or anything like that. And all the books got put out through the publisher, but it was essentially self-publishing through them, which was a quite a novel way to go. Oh, so to speak. <laughs> I'm good at that without even trying. <laughs> I've spoken to, to people who've, who've been writers who actually write some of this type of fiction, erotic fiction, to, uh, to support their other writing um, passions because there's actually really good money in it. Is that right? There can be. Um, for me, under the, the really smutty name, uh, well, the, the smuttier name, I have 71 titles out at the moment written over the last about two years. Um, and it's earning better than anything I have done before, but it's nothing like a full-time income. It's not even close to minimum wage, um, what I've earned from that. And that's partly because I'm good at creative stuff and I'm not very good at marketing, for example, or advertising or knowing what the hell to do to get eyes on the work. I think the work's solid, um, but, you know, obviously I'm viewing it through a very uh, biased lens. Um, but finding people to, or getting people to find it is, is always the hard part. And there's other people who are way, way better at marketing and can churn out words and they, they may or may not be quality words, but they're good enough words and they take off and you know, all power to them. We all have different strengths. 
I, I remember the Twilight series, uh, my, my, not that that's the same kind of fiction, but my, at the time my daughter was, was a teenager. She was, she was gushing over that stuff. I tried to give it a read and I could not read it. It was that bad to me. Yeah. Um, but there just must've been something about how they marketed it that, that uh, took it through the roof. Well, uh, you may well be aware that um, the Fifty Shades of Grey series is actually fan fiction from Twilight originally. Uh, names changed, situation changed, but essentially following, I believe, following the same kind of story arc to a certain degree. I think I've got that right. Anyway, um, but many people uh, will um, say bad things about Fifty Shades of Grey. I've not read it, but people who I respect have said it's really not very well written. But there's one person I know, at least, who, who agrees it's not well written, but it's a great story. And that's what people have responded to, a great story. Even if the words don't, uh, like, the words not, might not be what you wanted to read, but the story is. I suppose it's the journey rather than the steps, if you understand, if I'm, if I'm making that clear. I think I, steps, I They like the journey. I think I do know what you mean. Dan Brown's a bit like that with his um, Da Vinci Code because that's a great story, but it's not the best written work I've ever read. So, and I, I actually listened to the Da Vinci Code for the first time uh, as an audio book and I found it reasonably hard going because it was irritating me the way, the way it was written, but the story was awesome. So, um, yeah, I, hear, I do hear what you're saying. That's very, very interesting. All right, let's let's veer back to big country. I want to know when you first saw them. Um, so had you had you followed them all the way through right to the last um, release, past Stuart's death? What was your what was your history there? Did you follow them through the nineties? Um, yeah, I did. Um, I I sort of I set back. Other things were going on in life. Um, I, moved, I was still living in Sydney until the mid-90s and then um, we moved to Dubbo uh, and so it was even harder to get hold of stuff in Dubbo at that time. Um, again, internet was, well, in its infancy at that point. Um, so I followed and that's when I actually joined the country club but they weren't releasing much at the time. Um, but we made a trip to Britain and Ireland and Europe and I bought um, Why the Long Face while I was in Ireland. Um, so that was nice. Um, but actually, I think um, Driving to Damascus was like a return to form album. Uh, but I actually didn't buy that until after Stuart's death. And I didn't buy uh, the Raphaels until a few years after that. Um, so I was following. But I, by the time I actually um, I stumbled across the news of Stuart's passing uh, just I have no idea what I was looking for. It was my first year in Brisbane. I was on the internet looking at stuff and then this, somehow this story came up and went, well, that can't be right. And uh, I mean, I, I didn't have um, a massive reaction at the time. Um, I often don't. Uh, I don't see the gravity of a situation at the time. And it's only in passing years that you sort of go, well, hang on. It, it's really true. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's not changing. Got off the topic a little bit there, but um, yeah, I was still following them, but um, uh, I wasn't as 
deeply into it then as I was in the 80s. Fascinating you say you're in Dubbo because um, it was my uncle and I who, uh, my uncle became a fan first and I just followed along with him. He was close to my age. We were like brothers. And um, he lived at Bathurst. So just down the road a bit from a couple of hours from Dubbo, not very far away. So, man, our, our journey's kind of paralleling a bit there, Wilson. Tell me about when you, when you got to see them perform live for the first time. Have you seen all their Australian tours? Yes, um, only the Brisbane shows. Uh, but um, the very first one at, at the Trifford, the, like the aircraft hangar one, <laughs> this is the venue, it's, it's like a, an old World War II aircraft hangar, I think. Um, and uh, I was sort of front and centre. Um, I was a bit too shy to, to meet up with anybody that day, even though I'd sort of, I'd Facebooked with Andy a bit and everything, but I was a bit too shy to go out and introduce myself to anybody. I took the VIP package. So first thing I did was actually go in and shake hands with these people. Um, and obviously only two from the original lineup at that point, but um, pretty freaky. Um, and uh, when I got my poster signed, um, I made sure to take a photo of Mark's signature and I sent that to my sister because she was a drummer back in the day. And, um, and she was very obsessed with Mark's playing. So I took a photo and sent that through to her on Facebook and went, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have heard that Mark's a pretty good drummer. That's a that's a private joke with some of you fans out there. So to ex describe describe to me hearing the what it felt like to hear the music live for the first time. Um, yeah, I was overwhelming really because at that point it was thirty three years or so from first finding them, and uh, if memory serves, it was they started with Poromat. And so there's that tinkling guitar riff at the start. And um, look, for the first two, three songs, I was doing my absolute best to sing along. That's getting a bit bright now. Ah. <laughs> I was doing my absolute best to sing along, uh, but I couldn't because I was crying. It was just overwhelming after so many years to actually finally see them live. Yeah. I, I I recall crying too at my first gig. <laughs> that was, uh, I think, A Thousand Stars was the first song. So you've got Mark's drumming belting out there. Um, and that was that was very, very emotional. Mm. Especially since my uncle had died in, in similar circumstances to Stuart. So he couldn't be there with me. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a double, a double. It was, it was as, as good as it was sad. Yes. If I, can, if I can describe it like that. Um, you're a writer. You can write that better than I can say it. <laughs> that was part of it for me too, was, was obviously who was missing. And not just Stuart, because Tony wasn't there either. But Scott's such a great bass player. Uh, and a great bloke too, from the, the little meetings I've had with him. Um, but also like um, other musicians who, in the intervening years, who I'd enjoyed, either they'd toured and I'd missed the tours or they'd passed. Like I was a fan of Warren Zevon for a while and he passed in 2003. Uh, I quite liked They Might Be Giants and they toured Brisbane when I was out of, the, out of town on a holiday. And it's like, oh, I'm never going to see any of my bands. And then Big Country announced a tour. And <laughs> like one of the meerkats in the TV ads. <laughs> 
So have you had a chance to hear any of the of the new music uh, from Bruce and Jamie and Tom Kirchival, WKW? Uh, just caught little bits in the group um, and nothing that stuck with me, unfortunately. I haven't been able to set aside time to really sink into it. Yeah, definitely recommend that. If um, you're looking for a big country style, um, grab your, do yourself a favour once again and get uh, some, some WKW. It's seriously, it's a seriously cranking album. Yeah, you would you would love it. I'm positive. Um, so um, I really appreciate you sharing some of your some of your insights there. Were, uh, uh, did you get to see the um, the the the, um, the 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 other concerts that they came back on? So 2016, you saw them the first time. What about the other the other two times that they've been? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the second time at the Globe, uh, I liked that because um, we'd actually played a couple of gigs there in my old band, um, but the venue was slightly different. But it was just nice to say, hey, they're standing on the stage and I stood on that stage. It might be all like totally torn out the stage we had and they built a new one, I don't know. But um, I'll take it. They had found Heading as woke up Sitting now If there was one alone She could tell right away That I hate me
so I kind of like doing it. I probably shouldn't do it. So I don't need to really broadcast it out there. Like just. A <laughs> I mean, I got, there will be a test afterwards. Um, you've been following, I mean, you've been using your ears for listening to the lyrics and stuff, right? So, um, I mean, you can tell from over there. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm wearing baggy pants and everything, but, I mean, do you think I'm just blowing my own horn? Or what? Speak up, boy! Do me right away that I had me a real bad bone. You know I'm bad. I'm Batman. I did the VIP one that time as well, so I got to meet them all, give them a, a nice little handshake, and they signed a poster for me. Um, and then, yeah, the last one at the zoo, which we've, I've also played there, so <laughs> that was great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You had a chance to, to do that, and um, looks like they're going to be coming back to Australia again. Looks like they'll be coming back as long as they can do it. Let's well, hope they're the Rolling Stones. <laughs> it's up to us to keep going, isn't it? And I've, yeah. got to, I've got to get my son to come along. He might be 18 by the time the next one uh, comes around, so I'll drag him along. He only knows the song, you know, the one song that, that everyone knows. He only knows that one. Um, and he keeps giving me crap over calling them, you know, like it's old man. It's his old man, so of course he doesn't 
he has to say he doesn't like it. But then he says, but I don't really know the song. So I'm just going to try and push it on him and I might force him to come along. <laughs> I know the feeling. I used to hate the Beach Boys and the Beatles because my dad liked them. Now when you realise how good they actually are, um, you can go back and appreciate them. But maybe one day. But if he goes to a live gig, he'll be converted for sure. I think so. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Hopefully the UK fans will um, have a nice treat when they finally get out of bed on a Sunday today um, over, in, over in the UK. It gives, me a, it gives me a nice rest from having to wake up early on a Monday morning to talk to someone over there. But, um, no, Wilson, it's been a, a pleasure chatting with you and I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Take care. Cheers.